Good afternoon. It's the second Tuesday of the month, 4 p.m. Time for Boat Talk here on our community radio, WERU-FM Blue Hill and WERU.org. The Boat Talk anchors have lost a fluke. Mike Joyce died unexpectedly a couple of weeks ago, and Boat Talk will never be the same. I'm Alan Sprague, along with John Johansson, and for the sake of normalcy, we'll start with John's Boatyard Report and get to Mike after that. Boat Talk used to be a call-in show, and I expect a lot of listeners would like to add their thoughts about Mike. But, unfortunately, COVID restrictions won't allow us into the studio live, so... This is another pre-recorded Boat Talk. You can email your comments to boattalk at gmail.com for inclusion in the next show, or better yet, make a donation to WERU in Mike's memory. He'd like that. You can do that at weru.org. And here's Rusty Anchor John Johansson to start. Well, one of the shops I stopped into just recently was Wayne Beal's Boat Shop. Uh, of course, uh, Jeremy Beal uh, set a new record with uh, uh, Maria's Nightmare 2 at Jonesport with a speed of 68.3 miles an hour in the diesel class, which is boosted it probably close to six miles an hour. Of course, he did have the benefit of the tide, but everybody kind of knew that that was going to happen. So... But it, caught, it was a costly uh, win <laughs> because we think the gear's gone and the upper end of the uh, engine may have an issue and a piston, but <laughs> they're not really positive yet. So I guess he's going to start taking it apart, and hopefully he'll be at Winter Harbor. But getting back to his boat shop, uh, one of the fishermen out on uh, Vinyl Haven, and I guess we can mention him because most everybody knows who he is. It's Alfred Osgood. He always has Starlight Express. Well, there's a new Starlight coming, and she's a Wayne Beal 36, and she's hard chine. Jeremy actually put chines on this boat, which is going to be interesting to see how this boat performs compared to, say, another Wayne Beal that's round bilged. But she's also powered with a heavy engine, but it's got a lot of horses. It's got 1,400 horsepower in it. It's a 1,400 horsepower man. And the last time I was there uh, last week, uh, they only needed to do some plumbing, engine plumbing. That was going to be done by Tim Toppins' shop. And I think everything else was just minor, minor work that Jeremy had to do. And then he was hoping to have it in the water maybe a week before the Winter Harbor races, which is the next race we've got. Uh, and so they were hoping to be able to play with her just a little bit to make it so that they got – at least a good performance out of her, you know? So the next race is on the 13th. Winter Harbor is on the 13th for lobster boat races. And on the 14th, we go to Pemaquid. And the last two races of the year are the 20th and the 21st. And both of those are off of Portland, Long Island and off of Munjoy Hill in Portland. But uh, uh, today I was in uh, the Bridges Point uh, shop, Bill Wright down on MDI on the, was it the Rich Town Road? It's over in uh, 
uh, Tremont, West Tremont, maybe Bernard right on that border there. And uh, he's got a Bridges Point 24 in there. And this was a boat that had sunk and they had brought her up and they've uh, took it all the way back to basically a bear hull and, and he's put the interior back in. He was working in the cockpit and he's probably about a month, maybe two months away from launching it, at least do, do some sea trials and maybe then just have to put the finishing touches on this winter. He's got a, a few people also looking to do a new boat. Uh, you know, so he does, he hasn't taken on a project yet, uh, but, you know, he doesn't think that, you know, he's not really worried. He's, there's plenty of work out there. And then I was in a yard and I'll leave it nameless, but one of the things we're finding, and most everybody knows the problem, there's not enough employees out there. And one of the boatyards said something to the effect that if, say, 10 or 15 boats don't come back, they're not going to look to fill their spots because they don't have the help to do that work. So they're willing to, say, lose 10% of the business so that they know that they can get what they do take on done, you know, in the time frame that they're supposed to get it done. And it's going to be interesting to see, you know, how this all transpires over the next two or three years. You know, uh, we're in a recession. You know, you kind of wonder, you know, is it going to slow down? You know, I always thought that COVID was going to slow us down. It did just the opposite. It launched us into a, a realm that a lot of these guys never thought they'd be in. They had so much work, you know, that they couldn't get done, you know, but the boats are still being built. We haven't seen a slowdown anywhere on the coast. So the, the big problem is, is employees. Now, another boatyard in Midcoast, Maine, told me, that his problem is that without the, a certain number of employees, he can't hit the bottom line because he doesn't have enough billable hours. So, you know, that could trigger a problem, too, in some yards. You know, most of the yards are probably going to be OK, but there's some that, you know, are going to feel a pinch because of the lack of employees. I was in at uh, Artisan Boat. That's in Rockport. And they've got a couple of very interesting projects, one that's all done. And she was ready to go to the Adirondacks. She's an item scow. And I think she's about 30, 35 feet long. And scows are basically a giant paddleboard <laughs> with a big mast in it. And boy, can they fly. And of course, it, they're more popular out on the Great Lakes than they are on this coast. Although in Newport, they used to have a large scow. And I, she was like 60 feet long. And I remember her when, when we were down and I was covering the America's Cup and stuff. As I think she had something to do with the Museum of Yachting. And every once in a while, they would have her out sailing. But they, did, they uh, redid her. But she's coming back this winter to have a new deck. And the other boat they had in there was a UU. Now, UU was designed by Bugatti. This is Bugatti, the car maker. Yeah, Bugatti was going to do a line of boats. So we developed three sizes, this being the smallest. And basically, I don't think it's much more than eight feet, but it's a piece of furniture. And of course, Addison, very, very good woodworkers. And she still looks like a piece of furniture because she sits on the deck of Atlantide. Atlantide was a yacht that spent most of her recent years in Blue Hill, but she was sold. 
and she's over at the Royal Huseman Yard in um, the Netherlands being totally re redone. She's not expected to come back to the States till next summer. And in the, in the interim, this, the UU was, uh, is being refinished. Right now, her engine's in Pennsylvania being rebuilt. That's basically what they're waiting for. Uh, but unfortunately, what happened, these were prototypes. But they never went to fruition because Bugatti died. And I don't think the, other, the family members or whoever assumed the company wanted to pursue it. Hmm. So that was kind of, it's a real interesting boat. And if you want to see a picture of it, it's on my Facebook page. So just look up John Johansson and you can get on my Facebook page. That's J-O-N-J-O-H-A-N-S-E-N. -E yeah, and oh. he it was during World War I when he was doing this. And he just passed away before it. You can correct me on that. So it may have been actually World War II. But anyways, he didn't, he didn't live long enough to see it actually happen hmm. and nobody wanted to you know pass it on uh but other than that all of the boat builders are really busy i was in with glenn holland the other day the the 20 that he's producing it's a brand new model uh they're actually fairing her up uh she should be ready to be molded sometime probably this fall there was a 32 on the floor She's going somewhere in Maine, I think in Maine, and she's going to be kind of a sport fish day boat type thing, you know, and uh, let's see, there was a 38 in the back corner and a lot of 14s. Even though Glenn doesn't advertise the 14 footer, he had like still has 10 of them on order. So they try to fit as many as they can in between the big boats because the little boats really don't make a lot of money if they make anything. It's the big boats that actually, you know, help the bottom line of a, of a company. So, you know, he's got quite a bit. Uh, we haven't talked about the A.J. Mirwald. Uh, back at the end of probably mid-July, early July, they launched her. Now, she was a total deck and house rebuild. They didn't have to do anything to the hull or anything like that. So she came in. Last September from Bivalve, New Jersey. She's an oyster schooner. They hauled her out at Front Street. They, uh, Tom Brownell from Brownell Boatworks moved her from the uh, travel lift area to the side of Front Street in a parking lot. And they put a temporary building over her and redid the decks in the houses. Did a beautiful, beautiful job. Launched her on the day we had the lobster boat races or the day before we had the lobster boat races at Stonington. So probably the 7th or 8th of July, she went in the water. They had four crash pumps on board and still couldn't keep up with the water because as we all know, oak doesn't swell very fast. Mm. And so they had to wait for the oak to, to kind of uh, catch up with the water to, to impede the water flow. And they did caulk her. They hauled her out a couple times and did some more caulking, and they did and they filled it with tar and the usual thing that most of them do for uh, uh, trying to keep the water out while she swells up. But then she's she left uh, probably um, two weeks ago. She left and headed to New Jersey. And the uh, uh, Ernestina, which uh, Ernestina Morrissey, she's been at Booth Bay. Um, the shipyard at Booth Bay Harbor at Bristol Marine in Booth Bay Harbor, uh, which is the old samples yard. She 
uh, has been hauled out there at least five years, if not seven. And she was a total rebuild. Basically, all that was saved was from the stem to the break in the deck. The rest of it was sawed off, the all rebuilt. Beautiful, beautiful job. They're putting her sticks in now. They're, re they're rigging her. And she should go in the water probably sometime in September. And then she is to go to Mass Maritime as their sailing vessel. So, but there's always a holdup because you're dealing with the government and you, mm. you, you never have fun dealing with the government. So that's what's going on there. And that's a big, big project. And they, like I said, they did a really, really nice job on that. And of course, they've been up on the Katy, which is up on, in Greenville at, on Moosehead Lake, owned by the Moosehead Lake, uh, Moosehead Marine Museum. And, uh, you know, they do some, some of the work or any of the work that's, you know, more specialized to the marine industry. They do that up there. This Bristol Marine will go up there to Moosehead and help with that. And that if anybody who hasn't gone on the Katy up on Moosehead Lake, do it because it's a great ride. The food's good. It's down east cooking. It doesn't cost you an arm and a lake to do it. And if you pick the right day, you can always go right to the other end of the lake because she's got a brand new engine and it's a C-18 cat, detuned big time because those are a thousand horsepower engines. And I think she was detuned to 469 horsepower. So, and it, this is the this is the Katahdin, actually. Right. We, yes. we, yeah, we call it the Katie. Yeah. Yeah. I've been on that boat. You're right. It, it, it's a fun ride. It's really well, it, very nice it, in the fall. Oh, yeah. And, and she'll run right up almost till uh, Columbus Day. But she was built at BIW in 1913, 1914. Uh, trucked up there on, a, on a railroad cars because she was taken apart at BIW and then rebuilt up on the lake uh -huh. and launched. And she worked for the Colburn Steamship, uh, you know, the logging company, and moved logs most, most of her life as a steamer. But then she was dieselized, you know, probably 50 or 75 years ago. 1923, I think I remember when they talked about that, the original diesel engines. Going into her? Yeah, but they've, yep. been, re they've been replaced several times now, too. Yeah, well, one of them, that, the reason she got a new cat, was that they had a little fire about five years ago on the 610 cats that, that she had in her. Huh. And we were able to find replacement parts for it in Eastport, but they didn't because those engines were taken out of a tug, but under an EPA mandate. So you couldn't use the engine, but you could use parts off of it, but they didn't need it, you know, but just in case we had backup. Huh. And then the, the those engines made it through and then the new C18 cat went into her. Yeah. And then she was all rewired. So she's really in good, good shape. But she's got to come out of the water in another couple of years, you know, just for a normal inspection. Yeah. And that's done usually by Proc. Proc brings up a uh, a dry dock that they can piece together and lift her up. Because huh. it's quite a project to do that. Because huh. there's no other way to lift her up there. There's no railway or anything. No, there's nothing there. Right. Huh. And no tide, so you can't ground her out. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but in the lobster boat racing world, everything's going well. We've got seven races down, four to go. Uh, Jeremy Beal, as I said, you know, before, did, you know, set the new record. Wild Wild West is probably not coming out again. Uh, they held the record at Bass Harbor together. I think we did it 62 miles an hour. And I couldn't figure out which one had the 62 miles an hour. So we gave it to both of them. But 
Wild Wild West didn't show up in Jonesport. Jeremy did. Jeremy set the thing. But unfortunately, Glenn, Glenn Crawford, who usually is the one that puts Wild Wild West together, had an accident last week when his motorcycle and a, and a deer collided. Oh, well, I didn't know and that. So, huh. Yeah, so he's banged up a little bit. Shoulders banged up a lot. And so he's looking for, he's hoping to find somebody that can piece his, piece his shoulder back together. And so he doesn't think that he's going to be able to make it back out this year with Wild Wild West. But that doesn't mean he might not, you know. But, you know, uh, uh, Stonington was okay. We had 53 boats there. Uh, Friendship was next. And then we went to Harpswell. And the big winner at all three of those was Blue Eyed Girl, which is a Northern Bay uh, 38, powered with a 900 horsepower uh, Scania, I believe. And the one that gives him a race run for his money is, of course, Jeff Eaton's La Bella Vida. And she is a Northern Bay 38 with an 815 FPT in her. So they're all right about the same horsepower. And Jeff is probably behind her by about a maybe a, a boat length. But this new boat that's coming out, Starlight Express, Alfred Osgood's boat, the you know, the Wayne Beale 36 with hard chines and the 1400 horsepower man could be right there in that class but he's a he's in actually in class l not class k but you know there could be a race there uh hardly any gas boats are out hardly any wooden boats you know uh i don't even think we had a wooden boat in the jonesport race and that's like sacrilegious Mm. you know here's the capital of the wooden boat you know clan really and not one wooden boat was there both a and b classes and my boat's been at uh three races. I was in Rockland, I was in Stonington, and I was in Friendship, and I was the only one in Class A, which is kind of sad. You know, hopefully we can get some of the old wooden boats to come out, even if they're not hauling, but if they're old lobster boats, you know, we'd like to see them. I wanted Maynard Bray to come out. He's got a Mackinac boat that he got down in Booth Bay, and uh, Peter Buxton uh, did a great job in refurbishing her and uh, doing some structural work uh, under the platform and getting her ready for the year, but unfortunately didn't show up. But I was going to run stem to stem with them all the way down the course because, you know, those are two classic boats. Mine's a 1964 and his, I think, is around the same period of time, but was built in South Thomaston by the Mackinans. And not a lot of people know them. They didn't build a lot of boats, but they were they built a nice looking boat. This this very, very classic looking boat. and. Uh, so that's pretty much what's going on in the racing world. You know, we're still re- wondering what Stevie Johnson's going to do with the turbine engine he's got with like 2,300 horsepower. Uh, but we don't think it's going to go into a boat this year. I know they've had an a- airplane mechanic over there trying to figure out the wiring system. Hmm. And so that could be interesting at some point. Yeah. But, I worked on the... Uh jet boat that they had in northeast harbor with the two jet engines oh that was uh, dash i think yeah yeah wasn't that in a huckins yes yep Mm -hmm. yeah that never that never turned out to be as good as they hoped well that was over wasn't that at morris yachts for a while well yes that was more yeah it was still bass harbor marine but it was it was morris yacht there at the time right after they bought it from hinkley's but I wonder why it didn't work. I mean, because that's a PT boat bottom, really, isn't it? 
the the Hawkins is yeah, I would, yeah pretty close yes to yeah you get it up to plane I'm sure but um no there I believe there was some air intake they couldn't couldn't find a a way to get enough air into it to make it get the horsepower it needed to blow out. <laughs> well, that could be the problem with this one. Cause, and they put a 90 on it on the exhaust. And I wouldn't think that you'd want any angle well, in the exhaust. That was part of the issue too. Yes. The exhaust. Yep. You know, but Stevie Johnson's liable to do anything. Stevie lives on, for those that don't know, Stevie lives on, uh, Long Island off of Portland. And he's the one that uh, came one year with the car boat. That was yeah. a car basically bolted, chained down to a, a hull that was decked over with 200 twin 200 horsepower outboards that would do 50 miles an hour. Then he had one with the Corvette. Then he had the Tiki bar, you know, and then he, I can't remember. Oh, he had the van because that was the family vehicle. <laughs> he, and then he, he's always had something. Oh, he had one with two engines hooked front to back. He's always willing to try something that's crazy. And, you know, we always basically tell him he's in a class of his own, you know. But, you know, lobster boat racing is, you know, show. Yeah. It's really what it's all about, you know. And, you know, we'd like to see the gas boats. But right now, the the, the diesel boats are up there. They're going to, they might be able to break the gas record, but probably not this year. Wow. You know, because they're it's not they're not too far away from it. It's seventy two point something miles an hour the record, and Galen Alley still holds that record that he set. I think back in two thousand fifteen, maybe just a little before that. I think he set it at Friendship, but whatever. Uh, yeah. You know, but he still holds that. But you know, one of these diesel boats might be able to do it if you do it right. Yeah. So back to Mike. Well, one thing I was thinking of is is that. You've known him for how long? And I thought maybe if I asked you questions, because I didn't know him well at all. I mean, I only knew him through, you know, boat talk. Okay. Yeah. Uh, yeah. He and I knew each other at the Hinkley Company before we even started doing radio. We bet yeah. back to probably the the late seventies. And what were you doing at the Hinkley Company? Uh, well, I was the uh, service carpenter over at Bass Harbor Marine, which was part of Hinkley company then. And right. uh, Mike was a um, production carpenter at, at Manset mm -hmm. building, building boats there. So where did he grow up? Do you know? Portland, somewhere down in the Portland area. Yeah. Um, he, one of the stories he tells is uh, as a kid, he had a, uh, he, he and a couple of his friends rebuilt a, a beat up old rowboat and uh, used to take that out into the river. And it was so leaky that they had to swim out to it and then bail it out before they could get into it. <laughs> <laughs> so I wonder what brought him up here. Did he, did he go to boat school or anything to learn boat building or did he just happenstance into the Hinkley company? Yeah. I don't, yeah. I don't know what got him up here originally because the rest of his family is still down there. So where did he go after he left the Hinkley company? I think he pretty much just did. Well, he did like contract work. He did work for Abel Marine and he, I think he did um, some contract work for the jet boat 
they were just starting up the jet boat things back then, and he was doing some odd odd jobs for that too, making right. making molds or whatever. Yeah, and then and then how then he got into deliveries, right? Yes. Yep. He uh, he always liked to sail, and um, somehow he talked uh, his way into. Uh, a boat owner at Bass Harbor Marine who had a, um, I think it was a Mason 44, fairly nice, large sailboat. And uh, he and Mike really struck up a relationship. I guess he, <laughs> the owner liked to have somebody to, who could tell stories and right. Mike could tell endless stories. So um, he would actually fly Mike around to, get the boat you know the, the guy would sail it off for a while and then get done somewhere and park it say in martha's vineyard for example mm-hmm. and and then he has to go off and do some business so he'd he'd send his uh his own private jet up to pick up mike and take him down <laughs> to pick up the boat right he he liked that job pretty well um he- when the, when the, that man finally died, um, he left Mike a Hairshoff 26 as part of his will. Mm-hmm. And uh, when Mike found out about it, he called up the, uh, the heirs and uh, some lawyer answered. And he says, you really didn't think you were going to get that boat, did you? <laughs> so so he, uh, he didn't get it, even though the owner put it in his will. Yeah. Yeah. There's a lot of that. Even today, it gets worse and worse. Every year you go, the, the, you get better give it to whoever you want to give it to. Otherwise it's not going to happen. You see it more and more. Huh. Yeah. But he, how, how he did a lot of deliveries, didn't he? He, I believe he said he's done over 200. Yeah. It's quite a few. Yeah. That's a pretty good record. And he was pretty conscientious about how he did it, too. He was, yep. Um, actually, he talked about one time when he got into uh, some bad conditions off of the uh, east end of Long Island, trying to go into Long Island Sound. And I guess the currents were coming back out and the wind was going in the wrong direction. And the motor failed. And the guy who was the captain, the designated captain, Kind of had a breakdown there. Mike had to jump in and handle the boat, and he made it through the the race there. But the the captain was just in tears, I guess, and right. totally worthless. <laughs> yeah, he took a lot of pride in, in rightfully so, into doing those deliveries because he must have gone all over the East Coast and into yeah. Canada, right? Uh, yeah, he's been across to Nova Scotia. I don't know; he's been further up than that, but yeah, right. Um, yeah, yeah. The, d- doing all those deliveries, you you see a lot of things that only experience can give you. You know, like knowing what kind of lights are, you're seeing ahead, whether it's a, a fixed object or whether it's a boat coming at you or what. You know, mm-hmm. you know, doing deliveries at night because that's that's what they do. They don't stop. Well, plus he was a little before some of the electronics we have today. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, because he must have done celestial navigation, right? I don't believe he has, to tell you the truth. I've nope. 
Yeah, because he would have had Loran probably. Yeah, yeah, he could probably the, tell you some Loran A stories, but um, yeah. um, no, I don't think he ever used the sextant. Huh. But I know that you know from some of the stories that I heard when you know in my brief stint with Boat Talk, you know he's always told about going up and down the East Coast. You know, and some of the stuff he's done, which was pretty amazing. You know. Yeah, he's oh, got a. Did, did, did he always do, did he do it right up till the end? Well, a couple of years ago, his knee started to go real bad and got to the point where he just didn't feel confident, especially when you're you know standing night watch out there with a, a bad knee and you know things start getting lumpy. He, right. He uh, he stopped doing it probably two or three years ago. Yep. So. But he did a lot of great things on the radio, too. <laughs> yeah. He, well, it, it wasn't just boat talk either, was it? Well, his father was a radio TV guy, too. And I think he in, inherited that gene. Yeah. Yeah. But he uh, he was one of the original guys at WERU 1988. I don't know if he, I believe where he went to college in Nova Scotia, they had a student radio station there. And I don't know. He had a programmer or hung out, but I think he did some some college radio a long time ago. Yeah. So, it was, yeah, like you said before, it was kind of a shock when I heard the news because I didn't know he was, you know. Anything I don't think like he that. did either. No, I know. But you never know. That's for sure. Thank yeah. God sometimes. Well, but, yeah, I guess if you're going to go, you want to go quick. But yeah. Uh, yeah. But not so soon. Right. Exactly. Because well, you've known him probably the longest, didn't you? Yeah, like a yeah, I've known him for well, close to fifty years now. Forty five years, yeah. Yeah. So how did you two get going in in the radio show? Actually, um the uh Joel White and Maynard Bray were invited to come on WERU and do a, a talk show. And they, they both, they did, they did it, but they weren't real comfortable doing it. And, um, but they did get a lot of phone calls. So there was an interest in doing a boating show, but they, they weren't interested in doing it. Right. And, but I, I said, well, geez, you know, I, I was a, programmer there already i said well i know but I, I don't know if i really want to do it by myself let me see if i can find somebody to do it with like a co-host basis so i asked mike and off we went right and that so when did you start yeah 19 uh 2003 i think was the first one so yeah we're coming up on 20 years now so that must have been just before joel passed away yeah, yeah, it was. Yeah, he was not long after that. You're right. Yeah. Well, that's an interesting bunch that, you know, with with Joel and Maynard. And Giffy was involved, wasn't he, a little bit? Giffy, yes. Giffy started coming on the show with Mike and I. Um, mm -hmm. Oh, probably around 2010 or so. Um 
he uh, he he's not allowed. To, he's not supposed to. <laughs> he will, but he's not supposed to drive anymore. So right. that that put a, put an end to that. With nearly 200 boat talks to choose from, and Mike having done over 200 deliveries, Mike took being a boat captain very seriously. Here he is talking about captains. And the idea tonight was uh, good captain, bad captain. Captain is a learned and earned position. You don't just get appointed or elected captain, especially if you've never been on a boat and don't understand how they work and don't care to learn. That's not a recipe for good things before you're traveling on a fake chart, you know? And uh, so anyway, good captain, bad captain, we've all known uh, more than a few of those and through history and literature, there are a bunch of great examples. I've got uh, uh, a few in front of me tonight and I know the boys have been thinking about it too, so. So who do you got? I don't know. I want to start with history. A uh, couple of great favorites would be uh, one of them be uh, Samuel de Champlain who uh, visited here in 1600 something or other into the great Harbor at uh, Mount desert where the boat talk cruise actually happens. And uh, interestingly enough, the natives come out in their canoes and knew to stay a musket shot away. How, how had they learned that? Uh, <laughs> they've been shot at and kidnapped uh, more than a time or two before Champlain got there. One of the cool things about Champlain was, uh, especially as a delivery sailor, uh, local knowledge, <laughs> something we all always want. Champlain always wanted the locals knowledge and courted them instead of looked at them as uh, Hey, let's knock them over the head and, uh, you know, uh, slave them or something. He tried to communicate with them. One of my, uh, again, heroes who come local here. Who else do you have? Oh, good Lord. Got a big pile here. Uh, how about bad captain? Captain Bly. Come on. He wasn't that bad. No, he was a good he, artist, you know? Oh, good Lord. And competent. He was beyond competent. That was uh, one of the things about him that, uh, you know. You but know, he had another he, mutiny. Captain Bly suffered three mutinies, it turns out. The one on the bounty was only the first. He had he another the, one. And uh, there was a big mutiny for the whole Navy. Uh, yep, at 1798 the, uh, and Spithead. Yeah, exactly. He was at the Nor, and uh, he got taken by his own sailors and that. Wasn't blamed for that. It happened to other people, too. Right. He was then, after, uh, a few years later, governor of New South Wales, and uh, the Rum Punch Rebellion broke out. He was taken prisoner and held in prison for a, a year there and then brought home and made an admiral. So I didn't hold that against him either. Um, <laughs> but he had three mutinies. That's just, I mean, come on now. And again, he was really good at what he did. And uh, people person, eh, not so much. You know? A lot of them weren't people persons, though. They ran the ship. And a lot of times you couldn't be a people person. The only one oh, that I know in the British Royal Navy that was very, very good with his crew was uh, Lord Nelson, Lord Horatio Nelson. In fact, at, the, at Spithead in Nor, his crew did not mutiny. Hmm. 
know? got Nelson on my list here. He is quoted as saying, desperate affairs require desperate remedies. <laughs> Gentlemen, when the enemy is committed to a mistake, we must not interrupt him too soon. Lord Nelson. How about uh, let's go to one of the greatest ones of all time, uh, Shackleton, you know. Mm -hmm. He went south three times to uh, try to uh, explore and discover Antarctica. None of them went well, and on the last one he died. And uh, the uh, second one was Endurance, where uh, the ship got locked in the ice. It was crushed and sank. It took him two years, basically, to get all the men back to land, and all of them survived, every one of them. Did you know, somebody tried to do that uh, trek over the island, yeah, and couldn't do it. Couldn't no. do it in the time frame that they did it in. No, desperate people. No, and uh, Shackleton is uh, just an incredible, willful fellow, alone competent. You know, difficulties are just things to overcome. You know, he also was quoted as saying, "If I had not uh, strength of will." I would have made a first-class drunkard, you know. <laughs> and um, here's another fellow who said uh, one of the greatest things about Shackleton, Sir Raymond Priestley, another explorer. He said, for scientific discovery, give me Scott. For speed and efficiency of travel, give me Amundsen. But when disaster strikes and all hope is gone, get down on your knees and pray for Shackleton. Yeah. And again, they stressed that he had the ability to uh, try and fail and then get the boys to try something else and make it work. Keep it coming, you know. They trusted him. Uh, again, uh, hell of a leader, you know. How about another naval hero? This from a great little book. Uh, it's kind of a kid's book. John Paul Jones, Soldier of the Sea. Okay. Um, he was the son of a Scottish gardener, and he was small of stature and violent of temper. And, of course, he was one of the greatest naval officers in the history of the world. Mm -hmm. He started in the English Merchant Marine at the age of 13. And by the time he had commanded a ship, he had still not learned to keep his temper under control. Two unfortunate experiences in the West Indies on his uh, first command, he had a sailor whipped who then died. Sailors took that badly in the next command. Um, they were plotting to throw him overboard. And uh, one of them um, come at him and John Paul Jones run through with a sword. And um, he got away with that. But uh, again, well, sailors, he had to change his name. Uh, yes, that's when he went on to a slaver, added uh, Jones to his name and uh, moved to America. Yeah. yeah. So anyway, from the uh, book again. It was then they added Jones to his name of John Paul. It was also these experiences which caused him to move to Virginia, made him available to the American Navy during the Revolutionary War. He was by far the ablest captain in the American service, and it was he who wrote many of the rules and made many of the traditions which govern the American Navy even today. Battles are won by men, not ships is an old naval saying, and John Paul Jones knew that ships and their men won battles when they were well commanded. 
He suggested so, establishing a Naval Academy, train young officers, and insisted they be gentlemen as well as seamen. Half a century after his death, the Naval Academy in Annapolis was established, and another half century later, it became his final resting place. Yep, Always unbeatable in any battle, John Paul Jones is most famous for his thrilling, surprising victory over Separus uh, and the old so poorly armed Bonhomme Richard. Yep. In the three-and-a-half-hour battle off the coast of England, the ancient Bonhomme Richard was pounded to pieces, but Jones simply refused to surrender. His victory was one which every naval officer remembers when he enters battle, and again, um, the English guy was uh, not feeling too good about anything and saw an American lieutenant go towards pulling the flag down and yelled, do you want quarter, please, now? You want quarter? I'll give you some. Oh, yeah, you know. And John Paul Jones checked the American lieutenant and roared back, I have not yet begun to fight. Didn't know when to quit, never. And we are trying to do some boat talk this evening, uh, Zoom-wise, talk about good captain, bad captain. There are a bunch of them, and uh, <laughs> um, it's your ship, Captain Michael Brassoff. Uh, former commander of the U.S. Benfold, a uh, guided missile frigate. You know, the slogan aboard was, it's your ship. You got to see the ship through the eyes of the crew. You got to uh, realize they know what they're doing and communicate, communicate, communicate. Discipline skyrocketed when everybody thought what they were doing was important. And then you got to listen to your sailors and uh, help them with stuff like, uh, you know, pass an SAT test so that they can get GI Bill things. But here's a great little uh, example of good captain, bad captain, I think. And um, let's think. Um, at the beginning of August uh, that year, two weeks before we were to uh, depart to the uh, Mideast there, I told Master Chief, load up 100 cases of beer on the ship and lock them up. He looked alarmed as he might be dealing with a closet loony. In fact, he gave me the 100-yard stare, totally dazed, because drinking alcohol is absolutely forbidden on Navy ships, and for a good reason. Nautical lore bristles with stories of mutinies, shipwrecks, and other disasters fueled by alcohol. Captain, what are you going to do with 100 cases of beer? I haven't a clue, I answered, but when opportunity presents itself, I don't want to be unprepared. And by the way, please get premium beer. Don't want my crew drinking anything substandard. It was obvious from his expression that he wasn't exactly with the program. And a week later, I asked where the beer was, and he said, well, the Chiefs haven't ordered it yet. Why not? Well, sir, we just think it's a bad idea to load beer. We think the crew will get in trouble. As a Pentagon alumni, I know slow rolling when I see it, and I was being slow rolled. When people don't agree with you, they... So their actions till your past drop dead date. Master Chief, I said calmly, I want you to load 100 cases of beer on my ship. Three days later, he came back with the executive officer, and both of them tried to change my mind. You guys don't understand, I said. I want beer on this ship. There's no way we can talk you out of it, Captain. No way whatsoever. And in short order, an 18-wheeler beer truck back down the pier, we loaded 100 cases of premium beer, put them under lock and key. I had the key. No one can figure out when, if ever, we might drink the stuff, but 
You can't go into a combat zone without proper gear. That was the Ben Feld motto. Always be prepared. By December 30, 1997, we had completed almost our entire uh, golf tour and still hadn't touched the beer. I was beginning to think the opportunity would never come. The very next day, New Year's Eve, Saddam Hussein threw another fit, and Benfield was ordered to leave Bahrain and get into position to fire our Tomahawk missiles at Iraq if ordered. What upset everyone on board, including me, was that the other ships were staying in Bahrain where their crews could celebrate New Year's Eve at the Navy base. In effect, they were getting prized for being less proficient with their cruise missiles than we were. And unfortunately, the crisis passed. While we are standing by at sea on the afternoon of December 31st, heavy storm, doused Bahrain with two inches of rain. Bahrain has no sewers and two inches of not very clean water flooded the entire city. It knocked out the power plant and closed the Navy base. And as a result, all the sailors were restricted to their ships on New Year's Eve. No alcohol. Benford was told to return to port if we wished. Instead, I set a course for the anchorage outside Bahrain, told my supply officer to chill the beer. He looked pained and perplexed. So the master chief. Sir, I'd like to try, try to talk you out of serving beer on the ship. Master Chief, I answered. I have no intention of serving beer on the ship. Why are you cooling it down, sir? We're going to have a cookout and drink beer, but not on this ship. As we approached the anchorage, we were met by a huge barge. I had arranged with our husbanding agent to have it towed there. We lowered our ladder to the barge, and presto, we had, at least in my interpretation of regulations, access to a non-ship party space. That night, while all other sailors in the night spent a bone-dry New Year's Eve restricted to the ships, my people had a well-earned blast on our party barge where the beer flowed. Cookout sizzled, stereo boomed, and we cheered the arrival of 98. The one thing we didn't have was fireworks. I mean, we probably could have rustled up with all the fireworks we had on the ship, but we were delighted to celebrate with friends in a unique way to the Benfold in a way that honored our hard work and many sailors said it was the best New Year's Eve party they had ever attended, not just uh, shipmates, but with comrades. And that's how their captain felt too. And again, good captain. From It's Your Ship, Captain Michael Abrashoff. Mike may be talking with some captains now. Mike and I used to emcee the Boatyard Dog Trials at the Maine Boats and Homes show in Rockland, and COVID has interfered with that, too. I spoke with John Hansen about what's happening at the Maine Boats and Homes show this summer. Mike may be talking with some captains now. Mike and I used to emcee the Boatyard Dog Trials at the Maine Boats and Homes show in Rockland, and COVID has interfered with that, too. I spoke with John Hansen about what's happening at the Maine Boats and Homes show this summer. One of the things that I've learned uh, over the years is that some of the really unplanned, unthought through things work out the best. And when you 
and Mike signed on to be our host at the Boatyard Dog Contest, I don't know how many years ago, I knew you. And I knew that you were going to be terrific because your mind is twisted by the blues. And I knew that that was going to work out fine. What I didn't know was how absolutely funny you and Mike were together. And it was just like two complementary planetary systems working off each other, making a already good event even better. Yeah. And since then, I got to know Mike a little bit, had some great conversations with him. And um, I loved the uh, depth and breadth and weirdness of his mind. And I'm going to miss that, that combination. Uh, you know, he, he, he was a uh, eclectic, we'll put it that way. I mean, there are things that I, that I would bring up in a conversation that I didn't think anyone else would pick up on. And he was right there and beyond. So, uh, he, he will certainly be missed. Last Feb- February, it became apparent that there weren't going to be enough boats around for us to successfully have a boat show. Uh, you know, by in February, I usually start calling around to my exhibitors to see if they're coming and seeing if they'll be bringing in the same number of boats that they did before. And I was getting, you know, feedback from people who normally brought four boats that if they were lucky, they'd be able to find one. And I'd be talking to someone like a Yarmouth boatyard who normally brings like eight to 10 boats, you know, various size outboard boats and things. And they said they'd be very lucky if they could find two. This went all the way down, you know, the, the, the list of my in-the-water exhibitors who were the ones that really, you know, it's hard to do a boat show with no boats. And so we, um, we came to the sad decision that we had to pull the plug for the year. And so we did. But we wanted to be able to do something to uh, kind of celebrate the fact that we've been doing this for 35 years and to stay in contact with our with our friends that we don't that we would normally see at the boat show. So we came up with this idea of the symposium and the birthday bash, and the. Uh, we really didn't know what that was going to be, but it fell together pretty nicely. We had, uh, out of the blue, had gotten an email from a, a guy who was um, the producer of a movie about Steve Callahan, 76 Days Adrift. And we all know and love and respect Steve. And so I, I said to the guy, I said, well, how far along is your project? Is it, could we see it as part of our, you know, birthday weekend. And he said, well, it's not done, but I think we'd set us in a state where we could show it. So we're going to be showing a, uh, I guess, sneak preview rough cut version of 76 Days Adrift uh, at the Strand on uh, Friday night, August 12th at, at 7.30. And that's one part those tickets for that movie are going to be available through us as part of our symposium package or uh, as a one-off event through the strand in Rockland. So, you know, I really think that there's a lot of people in the WERU 
radio sphere that no one respects Steve. And I, uh, I really think this is going to be great. I mean, this is the, the, the most unbelievable testament of human courage and resilience that I know of. So, yeah, yeah, it's I'm amazing. Really looking forward to that. So then we decided that we would do for the uh, people who wanted to be part of the weekend, there will be um, the movie is part of the package on Friday night. And then there are boatyard tours at Rockport Marine, Lyman Morris and the Apprentice Shop uh, on Saturday morning. And then Saturday afternoon, we are doing a uh, Petra Kucha-like presentation with nine speakers ranging from um, Ben Fuller of Penobscot Marine Museum doing a look at uh, Red Boudelier and his launching photos of the 60s and 70s along the coast of Maine and how that in its uh, transference to the Marine Museum became part of the Penobscot Marine Museum's foray into digital archives that are accessible all over the world through Lincoln Davis doing uh, Lincoln Davis of Stenson Pinkham, who is a world-renowned antique outboard uh, owner and a Mercury Marine instructor, is going to be doing a talk on the history of outboards and their future, which ought to be fascinating. He's got such a great collection of antique outboards. It's just, it's, I I went for a ride with him in May at McGonacook in his 1932 Old Town with his 1928 Johnson <laughs> horsepower on it. It, ran, it, must, like a, it huh. ran like a friggin' clock. It huh. was just absolutely great. How much did it weigh? Well, the Old Town, uh, what, the, the engine? The engine, not yeah. Not much, not much, because it, it was just about as basic an outboard motor as you can get. Huh. Uh, I don't think it weighed all that much more than uh, a 40 horsepower from the 60s. Huh. Uh, and the, and the uh, old town was, didn't weigh much at all. So it, it went really nicely. And, uh, and it was such a fabulous combo. Mm-hmm. And then uh, there's, uh, you know, uh, uh, Bob Stevens of Stevens wearing uh, yacht designs, going to be talking about the future of houseboats. And uh, we've got uh, Sam Chamberlain of Rockport Marine talking about restoration and refits of classic wooden yachts. So it should be a really fun afternoon if you are a passionate boat nut. I mean, I, I think it's going to be gr- terrific. We're also going to record it, uh, video record it so that we can uh, have it up on our website later on so that people can check it out from, from all over. Uh, and then after that, we're having a birthday party in uh, the uh, the Winter Street Warehouse, affectionately known as uh, Polly's Party Palace. <laughs> and it's uh, we're going to have barbecue and oysters and you know all sorts of fresh Maine food and Maine beer and Maine wine and Maine uh, hard liquor. So it should be... Uh, a good time, and it, uh, you know, I, I'm, I'm personally looking forward to seeing, uh, you know, all so many of the people that I've seen over the years at our boat shows or at other events, and uh, you know, with um, selling the magazine and the boat show uh, this last May, 
I want to say, you know, hello, goodbye to, to a lot of people. And, uh, and then hello again, because I'm not really leaving the coast of Maine. I just am kind of transitioning out of having to worry about a small publishing business, which I've been dealing with for 35 years. Yeah. But it should be a great weekend. I'm really excited about it. I'm excited about having, I'm always excited about having a party, as you know, Alan. <laughs> so, uh, so, uh, it was, so that's what we're planning on doing for our celebration. And it's not the boat show, but it's a chance for, you know, boat freaks to get together, talk boats, you know, say hello to each other and, uh, you know, keep the energy going. That's really what it's, what it's all about for us is yeah. to keep the energy going. So for more information on the show, you can go to our website, mainboats.com, and follow the link to the symposium and the birthday bash. Um, tickets are limited, uh, and they are going fairly quickly. So if you're interested in coming to the whole weekend, I recommend you sign up now. If you want to uh, just go to the movie on Friday night and um, see the story of Steve Callahan and listen to him speak afterwards, you can go to the Strand Theater and buy your ticket just for that movie uh, there. But either way, we'd love to see you and, uh, you know, talk boats, talk the coast of Maine. Steve Callahan was on Boat Talk a couple of times, once in March of 2016, and then also in December of 2012. You can hear that at weru.org in the Public Affairs Archives section. That's it for today. Fair sales, Mike. <laughs>